0: Welcome to the New Vision Church podcast. New Vision Church is a diverse, Bible-teaching, Jesus-centered church in San Diego, California, and exists to transform people and their communities by replicating followers of the biblical Jesus. Thanks for joining us today. Now here's this week's sermon. All right. Thank you for all the birthday wishes. I know a lot of you guys didn't see us last week and you guys were following us on Instagram, however you follow us when we're not here and uh, got a lot of good birthday wishes. Thank you very much. Got a chance to see a lot of cool stuff. Um, We got a chance to see uh, Joe and Amy Craft. They say hello. For those of you that are old school, new visioners and you haven't seen Joe and Amy for a minute, um, they are up in Truckee. And uh, and enjoying life, they just adopted uh, a young one. What is she? Maybe ten years old. Ten years old. Her name is Kinsey, and um, they are experiencing uh, parenthood, which is what they were praying for for many years down here. And God has seen fit to have it happen there. And so we got a chance to snowboard with them. uh, Had a really, really great time. We also got a chance to see Sharon and Sean. So some of you guys remember them from worship team. Um, uh, Hudson is that last name correct? So uh, they say hi, they're doing well. They're in Salt Lake City um, and in the land, just loving Jesus and serving and experiencing life. So anyway, they both, uh, both those families say hello. So we uh, are thankful to be back and thank you for your prayers. Tonight, we're gonna be looking uh, again in Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. And uh, Amanda read this to me on vacation. We were driving. Uh, We were, what, like 10 hours away once we got to Salt Lake City and driving home and and spent some time. And so Amanda's like, well, uh, do you want to read your passage right now so you can start thinking and formulating some ideas and praying about preaching it? And so we did. So we read it. And I'll be honest with you, the first time we read it, every time it got to a, a section that was the end... I was like, okay, that's the end. And she's like, nope, there's still more verses. And then she went for a whole nother section that was really, really good. And I was like, okay, so that's it. So I got two major points. And she's like, nope, there's more. And so she went. And so after five sections, Pete, you've done this to me. I want you to know this. After five sections, and listen, I tried very difficult, very, with, with much difficulty, to narrow and get everything down small, okay? Um, but some of the passages that are in this place right here, some commentators that I was listening to and preachers I listened to preached for one hour on three of these verses. And I do have 25 verses. So um, I'm, not, I'm not saying that to scare anybody. You can start your clock. I started my stopwatch right here. Um, we got 35 minutes. I'm gonna try to get through as much as I can in this amount of time and then we're gonna try to land the plane. So anyway, if you've been paying attention, if you've been showing up to what's been going on here, we've been going through Mark. And in Mark... We are in what is called the Passion Week. You guys know what Passion Week is, right? Um, uh, anybody familiar with Lent at all? Anybody done, I mean, sometimes we've done that before where we actually had uh, um, uh, Lent and, and went, went through and we we gave up something for 40 days in preparation for Easter. Um, not necessarily the same way the Catholic Church does, but the same concept. Consecrating a period of time to focus on Easter and resurrection, Um, not just showing up on Easter Sunday and being like, oh, it's Easter Sunday. That's a big deal. But actually thinking and spending a month and a half thinking, praying, you know, you know, putting yourself uh, behind the things of Christ and letting Christ things kind of rise to the top. Right. So Lent is about that. If you guys look to the newspaper, you guys see how how the Catholic Church is doing Lent this year. They had like the little uh, cotton swabs so they could do social distancing. So the priest was all decked up, had like all sorts of stuff, plus his original garb. Then he had his gloves. Then he had this long, you know, cotton swab and he was dipping a little bit in fresh ash every time and then trying to reach over and then ash somebody for Ash Wednesday on their forehead. So it was like, it was the front page of the Tribune. It must've been a slow news day in San Diego. Anyway, I was looking at that and just thinking, you know, we do so many things that try to have an idea of spirituality or it seems like it's a spiritual thing to do. There are so many things that we do that seem so spiritual, maybe even hyper-spiritual. And as we look at Mark chapter 12, and as you've already, I think Pete preached on it last week, the, start, the starting part of Mark chapter 12, it's talking about the different ways that people hyper-spiritualize things in the absence of true relationship with Christ. So, what I want to ask us to think about, and listen, if you did Lent, God bless you. If you're still in Lent, God bless you. Like, I'll give you fish. Like, it will, you know, we we have fasted. We just did the the Daniel fast. We are all about praying, fasting, and setting ourselves apart. But just for tonight, if I could play a little bit of devil's advocate, sometimes we set up religious things to do so that we can feel like we accomplished something. And maybe that's to hide the emptiness of the spirituality that's supposed to be behind that act. Does that make sense? Sometimes we set things up and and we all set things up differently. So I think if we look at Mark chapter 12, what Pete talked about, I think he probably talked about the the Pharisees last week, right? And remember the Pharisees had some questions for Jesus. And they came to him and they talked about what? You guys remember? Anybody here last week? We'll do a little bit of Bible quiz trivia. You guys, you didn't know you're going to be on thing. Okay, taxes, right? Paying taxes to Caesar. And so they thought they had a question that seemed somewhat spiritual to try to pin Jesus down into an answer so they could accuse him of something very unspiritual, right? They were trying to like actually bring him up on charges. So the the most of the chapter of 11 and 12, both of those chapters are a series of tests and landmines that different people had an idea to test Jesus. Now, remember... This is what day, you guys remember in, in the Passion Week? This is like Tuesday going into Wednesday, right? So we're like halfway through. So what happens in 72 hours? Jesus is dead and crucified in 72 hours, right? So if it's on Tuesday, if it's on Wednesday, it's like 48 hours from now. So we've got this day going to tomorrow. Uh, he goes to Simon's house and then uh, the, the, the woman anoints him. And then Judas Iscariot gets frustrated. He goes to the, to the religious leaders and sells Jesus out. And that night he is betrayed. That's, that's, that's how close this all is. Like some people and some commentators said, this is the last public discourse of Jesus that he's saying to the masses. I would think that'd be an important thing, right? I mean, if you knew, like if you're Jesus, right? And you know, this is the last, your last shot. You've had three years preaching, teaching, miracling if that's a word or an adjective or an adverb, uh, creating and doing miracles, right? If you've been doing all these things for these three years and now it's down to the triumphal entry and now the water's moving really, really fast, right? Anybody, Whitewater River rafted before, right? So at some point you jump in and it's a little bit slow, but what does the, the guide say? Now, when it gets bad, hold your, you know, you, know, you know it's bad when they tell you, take the oars out of the water, right, Pete, right? and you hold them straight up and down in your boat, and you're supposed to huddle into the middle of the boat. Now, you haven't started the raft yet, and so you don't know that that's, but it sounds scary, they they scare you. They make it sound like, oh yeah, and we've lost people before, so this is called the Widowmaker Rapid, so you don't wanna lose and jump out, so don't try to help us. Get in the middle of the boat, right? Well, at this point, The water's starting to move pretty fast. There's been some meandering. Jesus did a lot of things when a lot of places talked to a lot of folks, you know, um, miracles, everything. But now this week, it's kind of like, boom, 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 boom. So we're in this place. We're in Mark chapter 12. So Pete ended, I think, with um, verse number 17. And Jesus said, render what to Caesar, the things that are Caesar's, and to God, the things that are God's. And everybody was amazed at him. That was the first group. Then there was another group of people saying, well, that group failed in their attack of Jesus. Let's figure out if we can do something better. So we got the group said in verse 18, and some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection, they came to him and and begin questioning him saying, teacher, Moses wrote that if a man's brother, sorry, I'm making sure that I'm not, Paused on my thing, because then I'll go for a really long time. It says, um, teacher, Moses wrote um, for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and leaves no child, his brother should take up his wife and raise up offspring to his brother. There were seven brothers, in verse number 20, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and he died, leaving no offspring. The second took her um, and died, leaving her no offspring. The third likewise, and all seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died also." So verse number 23, here's their question. In the resurrection, you guys remember what it says back in verse number 18? Sadducees said there is what? No No resurrection, all right? So, but their question was, so Jesus in the resurrection, when they rise again, which one will the wife be for? Like, where's this gonna go? Now, obviously, Jesus knows what the Sadducees are. He knows their thinking. He knows their their methodology. He already knows they don't necessarily believe in angels. They're not really big on on resurrection. They don't believe there's gonna be all these idiosyncrasies of heaven. They're They're not into those things. The Pharisees, on the other hand, they would have been all about it. In fact, some commentators even say that the argument was not just to attack Jesus but it was kind of like tongue in cheek, making fun of somebody else. You ever, you ever had an argument with somebody, but you knew somebody else was listening, and so you said something so it kind of burned them while you tried to win this point here at the same time. They're trying to get two for one. They're trying to slam dunk on Jesus, and they're also trying to like burn somebody else. See, the Pharisees were arguing that when the resurrection happened, they were so they were so finite, uh, I mean, finite. They were like looking at every single aspect to try to figure out what the resurrection would be like. So one of the arguments was. Do you think we're gonna have the same clothes when we're resurrected? As though that would be a significant thing, right? Um, You wanna make sure you're dressed right when you get raptured. Like, that's kind of weird, right? And then they had another argument, like, would you stay married? And what would your family be? And even some pharisaical um, traditions held to the fact that you would even be able to have kids in heaven and that you would have basically a life like here, just there. So that's kind of an extreme weird view that I, I don't subscribe to. Like I'm not into the angels floating around on clouds playing harps. I don't think that's it. That's Disney, Hanna-Barbera. That's not God, right? But then the Pharisees, they've made it so exacting that that the, the Sadducees had to go, Come on, guys, really? Like, they didn't even believe there was, a, there was a, even at all that. And so they're just like, let's go ahead and make fun of him a little bit. So as this story plays out, they set up this whole story. First guy dies, second guy dies, third guy dies, fourth, all seven brothers. Now, if you go into the Old Testament, we don't have time to cover all that, but you can look back in Genesis, um, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, there were specific rules considering what would happen. And you might think that's a silly, a silly thing, to happen, Like, why would there even be a rule or a law for you to have to marry your, your brother's wife if your brother died? Like, why would you even do that? Well, when Israel was first starting out, and when the tribes, right, you got the, you got the 12 tribes of Israel, each one of their tribes, in their culture, in their understanding, with, with the way that they understood things, The things passed on to the oldest son, right? The oldest son was important. So if there was an older son and he didn't have offspring, then those things couldn't be passed on to the next. And and it created a problem of wealth inequality. It, It messed up the family structure. It messed up what Israel was doing. So it might not make sense to us because some of these situations seem a little bit archaic. So we can look at this and kind of go, that's a dumb story. Like, Why would that be the question you asked? But it was important enough to know, if you go back into Genesis, it was important enough to God that there was some stories where there were some older brothers that did not do this. And the penalty for them not doing it was actually death. They were done. Like, because they did not honor their fi- family, they did not consider the welfare of the future of their house as a significant thing. That might not make sense to us, but at least for them and their culture, it made sense to them. This is what you do for family. There was even a law, right? And you've, you've heard some of this, like when it comes to uh, Boaz and Ruth and the Kingsman Redeemer, some of those words making sense to some of you out there that have heard the Bible, right? So there was, they even had things that we are familiar with that you would go, and if, for, there was even a policy that if the man did not wanna marry you, if you were the widow, right, and and the, the, the second brother didn't wanna marry you, there was a court system that they had in play so you could actually go to court, and if you didn't get a res- resolution, then they would call more people and, and then more people until finally you had this huge council listening to you. And do you know what the answer was? Do you guys remember this? It's kind of one of those funny things in the Bible. If the man did not do his job, you would take off his sandal and the widow would spit into his sandal and his new title was now not the family title of who you were, but it was the one whose sandal has been spit on because you have spit on the family. That was your new last name. That's a pretty significant change. So this story might seem silly to us, but trust me, it was not silly to the nation of Israel. And when Jesus answers it, it wasn't silly to them, to him as well. So he says this whole thing. Now listen to this in verse number 24. So remember, the question is, whose wife is this person gonna be? Verse 24, Jesus says, is this not the reason that you are mistaken, that you do not understand the scriptures or the power of god listen there are some burns in scripture that are so smooth that you don't even know you got burned i don't know if you've ever been put down to a point that you had to walk away later and be like dang that was like an underhanded compliment that was not even a compliment at all like Brent, you look good for the first time in your life. Like, all I heard was, you look good. Hey, Brent, you're dressing well. Did you come into some money yesterday? Like, like people, if you say something with something else at the end, it changes the context. So Jesus is like, there are some huge things that it seems to be, you guys are misunderstanding. And he says, the, the first of these things are this, that you don't seem to understand the scriptures. Now remember, this is the Sadducees. And if you know anything about the Sadducees and the religious order, Um, their specific area of expertise was the Pentateuch. Like they only like to have theological interpretation based out of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. That's where they stayed. The Pharisees, They went above and beyond. So the Pharisees were creating rules for rules, laws for laws, but the Sadducees said, if we don't see it in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, it's not true. That's how come they couldn't see the resurrection because there wasn't a whole lot of resurrection type talk in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Read them. I mean, there's a lot of stuff in there, but there's not a whole lot of stuff about that. Now, the nation of Israel understood the resurrection. There is plenty of verses all through the Old Testament, all through the New Testament, that talks about there will be something next. There will be something after. And then Jesus says this. He says, you don't understand the scripture, you don't understand the power of God. And then verse number 25, he says, for when they rise from the dead... So he's already just saying it. He, just, he didn't even like try to get explanation. He said, so, th- hey, good joke. You guys are funny. I know that you and the Pharisees don't like each other, but let me just go ahead and settle this. For when they rise from the dead, they are neither married nor given in marriage, but they are like the angels in heaven. People misinterpret that to say that we are angels in heaven. Not, that's not what it says. We are like the angels in heaven where we're not in marriage or given to marriage, but we're servants of the Lord most high. We get a chance to worship in a different way. There's a whole new understanding then he says, verse 26, but regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now I've read that before and without doing a whole lot of stuff. And I was just like, all right, Jesus, I'm waiting for like the real burn. Like you already said some really good Bernie stuff earlier. So I'm waiting for like a zinger, right? And he just like mentions God of, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I'm like, and get him, you know, get him, Jesus. Like, like, make it really sting. And then he moves on. He goes, he's not the God of the dead, but he's the God of the living. You are greatly mistaken. Now, obviously, if you look at this and you think about this for a couple of minutes, the reason why this is such a big deal is because he was talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the present tense. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob although they had been dead for some time, he said, he didn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I used to be part of your family lineage. He says, I am still now currently and ever have been the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then he finishes it with, I'm the God of the living, not the God of the dead. You guys, got your, you guys are a little bit all twisted right? A little bit all mixed up. So you got this, this whole thing here. The Sadducees are like, that's the best thing that they could come up with. They've been thinking about this. They've been planning it. They probably had like some, some, some Zoom call meetings all together. Who's going to go first? Who's going to go second? You say this, then I'll say this. They had it worked out. They had some time. They just saw the Pharisees and they're like, oh dang, he, he did really good with the Pharisees. All right, what's our play, right? So they're waiting. So they send in their champion. And so it keeps on going. Follow along with me more. So he finishes them. He's got the Pharisees squared away. He's got the Sadducees squared away. And now it says, now one of the scribes comes, heard them arguing. And now listen, he probably heard both arguments, probably heard both statements. And he's just going, All right, like that that, that was a good one. That was a good one. I knew what Jesus was gonna say. Anybody ever worked out an argument in your head where you thought you knew what the opposition was gonna say? You worked it all out. In debate class, I think Cassie did this. She would have to write down both sides of a debate so that anything possibly that could come against her, she was ready for a rebuttal, right? Now, Jesus is just doing life. It's just a Wednesday for him. It's two days before the crucifixion. It's just Wednesday before crucifixion day but this is what they are doing. This is how they are spending their time. The Bible says uh, a, a chapter earlier, um, and it also says a chapter later, later um, verse number, what is this? Oh, this is actually 1212. Remember, this is earlier in the chapter. They were seeking to seize him, yet they feared the multitude, for they understood that he spoke against them, And so that uh, they had to, so that he left them and they and went away. But they've been thinking and planning and scheming to kill him. There were other places that said from that point on they sought a way to go after Jesus to kill him. So they've been working on this for a while. So now it's the scribes' term. So Pharisees are over there kind of licking their wounds. Now the Sadducees kind of limp off, licking their wounds. And now the scribes. Now, they could have been part of either sect, but they were kind of like the smart guys. They were the ones that would write stuff down. They were kind of like uh, uh, intellectuals, uh, maybe a little philosophical. Maybe they called them doctors, you know, but these are the ones that kind of had it. Like, you know, well, all those people with their little religion stuff, let us come with something a little bit more um, uh, with some more substantial criticism, so one of the scri- scribes comes along, uh, hears them arguing, and recognizes that he had answered him well, um, so he 's at least able to hear that and see that. and he asked um, Jesus, "What commandment is the foremost of all?" Jesus answered, "The foremost is, and some of you guys know this is the Shema." Um, I think that we've actually talked about it here before. You can look at Deuteronomy chapter six if you wanted to pull more information about this. But this is the part that Jesus said, "'Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, "'and you shall love the Lord your God "'with all your heart, all your soul, "'with all your mind, with all your strength.'" And then Jesus goes immediately into a second. Now the guy just asked for the greatest, right? But then Jesus like said that and he's already got. he already knows that he's nailed that one. And then he went ahead and added the other one, which is Leviticus, right? So this is like, Jesus didn't make this up. This is from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, where he added this, this second part. And he said, and the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Now, In the Shema, like if you read through uh, Deuteronomy, if you read through Old Testament law, that was said a lot. It wasn't just like one time. You you, you know the 10 commandments, right? Um, You know in Deuteronomy and Exodus, you can read the 10 commandments. That's in there a couple of times. You can read the whole list all the way through and be like, okay, got it. Okay, that's a retelling. I got it, got it, got it. Well, this statement, it says that, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God, is one Lord. That said in a lot of places. There's a lot of chapters. You can go to to Deuteronomy chapter 12. It says a whole bunch of times in that chapter. Chapter 30, it goes all the way through. This was a common theme. So we think of the 10 commandments. Like, I I don't know very many people when I was growing up in Sunday school asked me about the Shema. Like, that wasn't something that people asked. But the 10 commandments, people ask that stuff all the time. What are the 10 commandments? Like, that's the big deal, and I'm not saying it's not a big deal. I mean, obviously it was given to Israel for a reason, but if you, were, if you were a Jewish person and you were thinking about what God said consistently through scripture, not just at a one time or a list sort of thing, but to have the posture of your heart be in the right spot, The Shema is something they thought about all the time. It was a blessing that they would look at and read and that, right, they were supposed to do what? Take the steps and they were supposed to put it on the doorpost and like know everything about this stuff in their head, in their heart. They were supposed to let all of their actions and attitudes be through this filter of God has to be first in everything that we do and everything that we say and everything that we think with every ounce of might and energy that we have. And then he says in another passage, not here, but he says that all of the law and the prophets do what with these two? hangs on these two. That means that you've got, the, you've got all the law and the prophets. And if you, even look at, if you even look at the 10 commandments, right? You've got the first four of the commandments that talk about loving God with your whole heart, soul, strength, and mind. And then you've got the last six commandments, which is basically telling of us how to love each other as we love ourselves. Obeying your parents, you know, not stealing, not cussing. I mean, that's, that's in the first four, but uh, not slandering, uh, not lying, not, not acting inconsistent with the character that God has given you. So the first one goes to the first four, and the second commandment kind of covers the other six. So in here, obviously, he says all these things, and the scribe says in verse 32, the scribe says to him, right, teacher, you have said truly that there is only one. There's only one and no one else beside him. And that you're supposed to love him with your whole heart, with your whole understanding, with all of your strength and to love your neighbor as himself. It is much more than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now listen, since the 10 commandments, since Deuteronomy, since Leviticus, to this point in the story, to, to, to Wednesday of Passion Week, right? There's been a couple thousand years and the methodology for acting right was doing exactly what this guy finishes the statement with. What's he say? It is much more than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. Think of this week, Passion Week, getting ready for Passover. So what happens specifically in that week? Everybody's coming to the temple. Listen, if the priests have like a running, uh, a running tally of ministers that are on board, and maybe normally they need 25 for the day, on, on Passover week, they probably say all vacations are canceled. Nobody's going out of town. This is Passover week. Everybody's coming. Everybody needs a dove. Everybody needs a lamb. Everybody needs a sacrifice. Everybody needs blood. Everybody's bringing seeds. Every everybody's here. There was a place, and we're going to get there in a second. But there was a place that the coffers that they received. It was called the court of the women. And there was a place that they had these, these huge trumpets, like these baskets, and the people would go, and according to what you needed to give, there was 13 different receptacles that you could give things to. So maybe you had a certain kind of grain offering. That went into this one. Maybe you had a certain kind of blood offering. That was over here. Maybe you needed to buy a certain kind of lamb, goat, or sheep. That was over here. If you needed to make atonement for something, that was over here. So this courtyard was where everybody could come. It was the place that everybody was welcome. So, so while we are having these conversations, sometimes it helps to think about the things that they were seeing and smelling and understanding because it makes the story actually make a little bit more sense because he's literally, literally sitting there and they're watching people while they're having dialogue. And in the background of everything happening, there are things getting killed. There are priests coming to work. There are people taking the stuff that Jesus turned over just yesterday or the day before. Remember, so Jesus went back in there and some stuff had been disrupted and now Jesus is there again and he doesn't disrupt today. Today he's on communication status, but he's sitting there. I gotta believe there were some people over there going, hey, if you see Jesus get up and walk over here, guards, you know what to do. We ain't doing this again. I lost about $10,000 worth of stock yesterday and that's not happening again. You stop that man. So Jesus is there watching stuff and they're watching the people and their, and their sacrifices and their tithes. And the scribe says to him, as he's watching all these things happen and listening to Jesus, you've said all this very, very well. And, this, and, and he says, um, verse number 33, just to reiterate that, he goes, to love one's neighbor as himself and to, to love God, all, all those things. He's just reiterating what Jesus had just said. He says, this is much more then all of these right here, the burnt offerings and sacrifices. That's a scribe. That's somebody that, that he does not have a job if people don't come to the temple. If people don't give their sacrifices, the religious elite, they are out of work because their entire system from the start of Deuteronomy till now has morphed into something that it was not supposed to be. And instead of it being something that sets people free, it turned into something that, that was becoming a burden on people's backs and on their necks. And so with great labor and great pain, people would trudge their way to the temple and they would do what they had to do because it was the law. And if they wanted to be absolved, if they wanted to be you know, in a good standing with God, if they wanted to have their name checked off the list, that they did all the spiritual things necessary to qualify them for a life after this, except for the Sadducees, but if they wanted to have all those boxes checked, they had to do these things. The story's gonna go on and it's gonna talk to the very last part. And originally when Amanda read this to me, I didn't really have a clear understanding on how come the story of the widow's mite was connected to the rest of these things. And we're gonna get there in a second. But can I just say this? I've, I've, I've normally seen the story of the widow's mite in a way that I might say something a little bit different than you're used to hearing it. I'm not trying to like, alter scripture and I'm not trying to change your perception. I just want you to think about it in context of what we're seeing right now. Jesus is watching people come in and do things that are like so ridiculous and and it just seems so wrong. And listen, this is Jesus's last public discourse in in the temple. This is the last time he's going to say these things. There's gonna be some discourse that goes from the end of this chapter into the next chapter where he's talking to his disciples. There is gonna be a party he goes to and people are gonna to talk to him. There's gonna be some, a couple of more days of, of, of verbal interaction. But think of this. This is the last time that Jesus is gonna be there in this capacity. After this point, every interaction that he has with the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the elders, the Sanhedrin, the religious elite, he is gonna be the defendant on his own death trial this is the last time he can speak what he needs to speak. I got to believe that this is kind of in a critical chapter. This is kind of an important thing for him to leave behind. We don't got a lot of time left. So let's keep on flying through this to the next story. So Jesus, as, as this happens, um, where I say, uh, verse number 34, when Jesus saw that he had act, uh, answered intelligently, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, nobody would venture to ask him any more questions. Three up, three down. Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, Jesus is still sailing. But now Jesus is going like, I'm no longer answering questions. Now I got some questions for you. I've sat here and you guys have given me the worst that you guys can. And remember, he's still sitting there watching all the, listening to the bleeding of sheep being killed in that spot and thrown up on the sacrifice. Watching the people make those exchanges that just a couple of days ago, he said, this is not okay. This is not my father's house. This is not what it was intended to be. And now Jesus is sitting there just saying, now I've got some questions for you. You guys wanna listen? And he says this, 40, 35. And Jesus began to say, as he taught them in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? David himself said, I am the, um, in the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put thine enemies beneath thine feet. In verse number 37, David calls him Lord. And so in what sense is he actually the son? Now, once again, this is one of those things that you kind of have to know the history of the nation of Israel. Because many, many, much times, if you study and you go through, the Messiah was supposed to come through the line of David. They knew that. Son of David was a common phrase. It wasn't not common for us. We're reading about it in the history and going, why would somebody just say that? That's kind of, a, that's kind of a, a, an interesting thing to say, right? Like very many times, people know me as Brent, very few times do they call me Brent, son of Ben. Like my dad's here today. He's right here. And, and I'm happy to be your son. But most people don't call me son of Ben unless they've been in Awana before. And if so, then whenever they meet me, they're like, oh, you're Benny's son, you know, and then that, that's what, but people don't normally call me through the lineage of my dad. But in this case, the Messiah for thousands of years had been referred to as gonna come through this, this line, gonna be in this family line. And so it was a common phrase that this is gonna be the, uh, of the house and lineage of David. So we've got prophecies. We got all the stuff leading up to um, the nativity that goes through that's talking about here's where, the, here's where the Messiah is gonna come from. These were all the things leading up to his birth, right? So in this specific instance, he starts asking a question. Now, one of the commentators I, was saying, that, I was, that I was reading or listening to said, of all the verses in this chapter, this, the other things are just like, uh, I, I think that I, like an illustration is kind of like as a parent, have you ever had to like listen to a barrage of questions from your kids that weren't really the issue on the table? Like the issue of the table was, did you wash your hands before you came to dinner, right? And then they started asking other things and there's this whole avoidance thing. I'm not saying that the Pharisees, Sadducees and scribes were at that point, but I'm just saying mentally in some aspect, Jesus was waiting to ask a significant question. And these other questions kept coming to him and this is his last day. This is his last couple hours of that day. At some point, I'm like, Jesus, just get them. Like, you know, like I, I'm like the disciple. I'm, I'm the wicked disciples. I'm the one that's like, we leave the city. They don't listen. And I'm like, can we bring fire down on them? I'm a bad, terrible person. So I'm glad that I wasn't there. I can't judge Peter because I'm kind of like a Peter sometimes. I want my enemies to suffer. And I'm like, that's not a godly trait. I'm working on that. But Jesus is sitting there listening to all these dumb questions and he's just, just taking it. And he's, he's God. So he's not like scared. Like he's going to mess up. I don't think he's going, I hope they don't give me a really hard one. It's God. He's got this. We're the ones that like worry about it. Like watching a movie scene where we're trying to tell the actors in the TV, don't go in the door. We don't need to help Jesus. He's cool. He's got this, but he's getting through all these dumb questions so he can answer the question that matters. And for him, the question that matters is even for the guy that he just talked to, what did he say? That's the nicest thing Jesus has said to somebody not on the team in a long time. You are not far from the kingdom of heaven. Do you know what's wrong with that statement? It's still not on. We could all be not far from the kingdom of heaven and you still ain't in a good spot. Like, I think we take that and go, oh, wow, he was kind of nice to the scribe. Like, good job, scribe. Half point you. The problem is that there are no half points in heaven. Like, you're either on the team or you're not on the team. Now, listen, listen, He is acknowledging that at least the scribe can see the erroneous nature of the system that has been created to bring justification. The scribe sees that the system is broken. He's at least admitting that this is not the way this should be. We should not labor down widows with burdens that they cannot carry. We should not hold stuff over the people where the the religious elite get rich and all the people suffer. And the scribe was even seeing like, this is a... This is not a good thing. I do agree with you, Jesus. But now Jesus says, that's the easier one to to agree with me on. Can we all see philosophically this doesn't make sense? And the scribes like, yes, I do. And then Jesus goes, can you also agree with me that when David is talking about the Lord that he's talking about a Messiah that's actually the Lord God over David? Like now that's a different situation. And they were used to idolizing King David. They thought the Messiah was gonna come like a David like a conqueror. That's how coming the triumphal entry. They believed that it was gonna be overthrowing Rome. And so Jesus is like, y'all messing a lot of stuff up. I'm just trying to fix the record. And I'm trying to tell you, you wanted a conquering king like David. I'm telling you, that's not the situation at hand. All right, I'm just reminding myself. We got a couple minutes left. So as we keep on going here, we don't have a lot of time to unpack this. If you wanna go home and do a whole study just on this, I'd recommend it, but like we're working through this because Easter's coming. We're, we're a couple of weeks outside of Easter and we've been working towards this. So you're gonna have a more exhaustive understanding of, of, of Easter and the Passion Week because we're not spending one week thinking about it. We've been spending a couple of months intentionally grinding down a little bit so you can think. So the Easter means something. The crucifixion is gonna matter more. Hopefully we can feel this a little bit in our soul and we can kind of feel what Jesus was feeling in some of these instances. So Jesus says to them, as this happens, um, oh, verse number 37. So David himself calls him Lord so that in what sense is he his son? And look what it says, the next verse there. And the great crowd enjoyed listening to him. This might've been the same great crowd that started off laying branches on the triumphal entry. This might've been the crowd that started listening to him. Listen, as you are bringing your offering in and as the scribes and the smart people are talking, it's like the big kid's table and the little kid's table. Maybe some people in the courtyard of the women that they're coming to give their alms and do their things, they're able to sit down and listen to some rabbis. They're used to being in the field. They're used to working you know, six days. They're used to like struggling in the sun and they get a chance to come to the temple. So it might've been laborious to come and to give your sacrifice But there had to be something ominous also about getting into the temple. And listen, you know the presence of God. You go somewhere, you feel the presence of God and there's a worship and there's stuff. Like there was worshipers, like sometimes we present it when we're preaching, um, we're trying to make our point. So we talk about the blood and the grit and and all this stuff, but you're also not picking up, there were worshipers singing at the gates. And as you're walking up to Jerusalem, there was incense burning. And so people were coming for a spiritual significance. And listen, it might not be as as correct as Jesus knew it was supposed to be, it might not be what you expect it to be, but for those people that did not have a temple concept and for the people that lived far away from Jerusalem, it says that when they walked up to Jerusalem, and we're not gonna get there today, but whoever's preaching next week is gonna cover it, The disciples themselves, they marveled when they stepped away from Jerusalem and looked towards the temple and they saw what huge rocks it was. It was covered in gold. It says that when people walked up, they were blinded if the sun reflected off entire uh, structure that was overlaid in gold. That had to be pretty, pretty incredible. For somebody that's a shepherd living out over here or a carpenter, somebody lives in Nazareth or some out, you know, backwards in Galilee, those people are making their all the way to Jerusalem. They're ascending the hill and they see this, this monument. They hear the songs, they see the smoke, the priests are there. And listen, if you were just a country folk coming up into the city, you're gonna be like, wow, this is how the big people live. These are the people that as they're giving their offerings, they're listening to the smart people talk and they might not know who Jesus is by face, but they've probably heard about him by name. And they probably were starting to talk like, Hey, who's that guy talking to those other guys? Remember, the guys, the, the, the religious guys, they're like football teams. They all got different colored jerseys on. The Sadducees look a certain way. The Pharisees look a certain way. The scribes look a certain way. They got tassels, so you can tell their team by their tassels. Well, how big their tassels were, what colors they were wearing. Like it was, a sh- it was a show. There was stuff happening. And so these common people are watching this and going, What's what's all this about? And they instead it says, the great crowd enjoyed listening to Jesus because he was speaking the hearts of what the people needed to hear. Last, last oh, we're on the home stretch, last part here. And in his teaching, he was saying. Now, once again, this goes back to the hard stuff. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in their robes like respect, and they like respectful greetings in the marketplaces. They like to be known. They like people to know who they are. There's plenty of stories that Jesus talks about. They went to go sit in the chief seats. They were fighting for posturing. They wanted to be on a right or a left. That's, 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 that's in Jesus' own camp. That's going to happen in the next night. While they're arguing about Jesus' death, they're going to be fighting for when you come into your kingdom, who can be on your right and your left, Jesus. It was a common thing. He's used to that. And he says, they like the respectful greetings. Look at verse 39, the chief seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. Look at verse number 40. Like to me, I'm going to say this last, these last five verses are going to kind of tie this all together. Verse number 40, who devour widows' houses. And for appearance's sake, they offer long prayers. These will receive a greater um, condemnation. He doesn't say a whole lot there. If you wanna read more about this, uh, Matthew chapter 23, I think has, uh, I haven't really looked at my notes, but I know it's in here. Um, I think Matthew chapter uh, 23, you can read, there's 36 verses about that one line. If you read Matthew's account, he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. And he gives a detailed outline of everything that they failed at. You did this, you did this, you did this, all these things. So do your homework, jump into Matthew 23, look at it. But just in here, he only mentions a couple of things that you devour widows' houses and for a parent's sake, you offer long prayers and you will receive a great condemnation. And then it goes into the widow's mite. Like I said, I was having a hard time figuring out how this goes together, but stay with me as we land the plane here. And he sat down, once again, remember, the courtyard, the temple uh, of of the court and all the common people are coming and all the 13 baskets where people can give their loot are all sitting there and the priests are coming that the things that he turned over a couple of days ago, that's all happening right there. And now Jesus sits down on one one of the little portico things or whatever and he's watching everybody that's listening to him. And he sits down opposite the treasury and he begins observing how the multitude were putting money into the treasury. How many rich people were putting in large sums? And a poor widow came and she put in two small copper coins, which amounts to a cent. And then he calls his disciples to him and he says, truly I say to you, this poor woman, this poor widow put in more than all the um, contributors to the treasury for they all put in out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty put in all she owned all she had to live on. Here's what I want to live us with today. I've always seen that story as Jesus like, you know, commenting positively on what the widow did. And obviously it's, he's, he's, not, he's not being negative to what the widow did. But if you take this in context of the last two chapters, and this is the last thing that is said out in public of the temple, this is the last comment the last commentary that Jesus is gonna make on public religious discourse like on the on the on the discourse of um I'm sorry on public life and the things that he is coming against, where people have been suppressed, where where people are not receiving freedom. We song us, we we sang about that, we sat sang about that, that we have the freedom, we have joy, we have these things. These people were coming not to celebrate the freedom, they were trying to pay their dues so that they would be accepted. And I think Jesus is sitting there and he's been listening to the smart people, the religious scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees with all their tassels and all their garb. And listen, the temple was supposed to be a place of honor and it had been corrupted. Jesus made that abundantly clear in his life and his testimony. But the last thing that he says is looking at this widow that came to give everything. Listen, there's not very many times in scripture that Jesus asked people to give everything. Like even the the temple tax was supposed to be a percentage, but she had so little, she didn't even have a smaller coin that she could give. So she gives this and it's like half of everything. Listen, I believe that this is also one of the, verse number 40, one of the widows who had been devoured by the religious system. See, the Bible says in James that if we're not taking care of widows and orphans, then our, our faith is kind of worthless. What are we doing? I, th- I think that we do a job. I think Nathan said it r- very well. I think, I think that we're trying. I think, I think we're trying to do stuff for widows and orphans. We want the kids in Hope House to thrive. We want more kids. But just as we close right now, and just as I kind of give us just a, a moment to think before we take communion. Like, I, I, it's so easy. Like the Pharisees, the Sadducees, some of these people, they make it so easy to come against them but I just wanna, I wanna know what would happen if Jesus walked in here, right here, right now. If one of you was undercover Jesus, low-key Jesus, I would wanna know what do you see that we're doing that we think that we're doing okay? And Jesus is going, yeah, that's not okay. Where's our arrogance placed? We might not put it in the front seats. Like maybe the front seats is the thing. And obviously we only got one in the front seat because he's gonna come up and help us do communion. But, but maybe, maybe we, we, we've reversed some things. And so we can tell ourselves that we're doing a good job. We don't, we don't, we don't lord it over people that way. And we don't, we don't put an offering plate in your face and say, give money or you can't receive you know, forgiveness or salvation. Maybe those aren't the ways that we're, that we're falling short but I gotta believe that if Jesus was here in front of us right here, right now, and he was looking into our hearts. Listen, Jesus, when it's an easy one, Jesus is gonna knock it out of the park, right? But even in your life, when it's not an easy one, Jesus is still gonna knock it out of the park. We're reading some simple stories, like they just kind of served him up, softballs, and Jesus is like, crack, crack. And we're like, yeah, get him, get him, get him. But at least we realize we are the enemies in these stories. We are the Sadducees. We are the Pharisees. We are the ones that spend time in theological houses arguing about theology that may or may not ever come true or that we, it doesn't really matter. And yet we bypass the people around us we're supposed to be looking at. I don't know what we're doing that's, that's crippling the people around us. And I don't know what the modern day widow for us looks like, but if Jesus was gonna look at us and say that you guys are doing it wrong because you're breaking even the very widow's what does that look like for us? So just for a minute, just in quiet, kind of quiet contemplation, can I just ask this as a church just to spend a moment in reflection? And what are we doing that we need to be doing differently, that we need to be doing better, that we need to be serving God with our whole heart, our whole mind, everything that we got? We might be doing good, but listen, good is not good enough if we're only close to the kingdom. Jesus says, I need it all. One of my favorite music artists says, if you can't come to me every day, don't come to me at all. Obviously that seems pretty legalistic and I'm not trying to say we, we say that to everybody, but do you understand the statement, right? If we can't come every day, can't just come on the good days or on the really, really bad days. Cause that seems to be where we come to, right? Like we really, really need help or really, really happy about the help that we got. But what about the mass majority of the 80% of our life that's in the middle? How are you living? How am I living? That's my question for myself. So, just let's spend a minute thinking about that. I'll close in prayer, and we'll move on to the with the service. God, as we come to you tonight, Lord, um, sometimes, Lord, the the Bible seems to just offer up really, really simple, clear things. And it's easy for us to even criticize somebody else that did it a certain way. And we can look at the right way to do it. But God, I wanna wanna go bigger than that. I don't wanna get close to the kingdom, God. I want you to communicate with us what is it that we should be doing for widows and orphans? What is it, Lord, that we should be doing for those around us? How about our neighbors? What do we need to do for the people that are suffering around us during this time during COVID? How many people are suffering, Lord, financially, Lord, that we haven't found? Or, or, and it's not our job to save them, Lord, but how can we step in the gap and how can we tell them about a resurrected King Jesus who's come to set people free, who's come to, to break the chains, who's come to give life where there's nothing but depression and death? God, help us to be salt and light, Lord. Help us to be... Um, something that happens here in this neighborhood so that people are able to come and to to let their burdens be released, not for us to be able to to cinch the last penny out of a widow who's been taken advantage of. God, help us to think of the people in orange, Lord, and help us to think of the people in Encanto. And God, as we form different ministry styles and patterns, and um, may it incarnationally, Lord, just be you, Lord. You want to love the people in these neighborhoods, and God, we don't, we, we don't know how to do that without you. Lord, unless you speak, Lord, we can't, we have nothing to say. And Lord, unless you move, Lord, we have nowhere to go. So God, I would just ask, Lord, that we would be humble, God, and that we would open up our hands and our hearts, God, and say, Lord, teach us, Lord, help us not to, to miss the mark. Help us not to create religious structures that seem spiritual, but really hides our spiritual um, shallowness. Help us to be in a way, Lord, that you receive all the glory and the praise and the honor. And God, may we be so careful, Lord, to to make sure, Lord, that you receive that and we take none of that for ourselves in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for joining us. Contact us or learn more at our website, newvision.city. See you next time.